I've been around some great storytellers in my life. People who could capture your attention, your emotion, and bring you through the highs and lows of every experience that they have been a part of, and they can put you right in the moment. Have you ever been around a storyteller like that? Well, I really love a good storyteller unless it's about a true event that involves me with a bad outcome that I don't know about yet. You know what I'm talking about? And so sometimes I love all of the expanded and all of the deleted scenes. But listen, if you come to me and it's been a bad day, just tell me how it ends and then start with breakfast. But after I know how it ends, it's easier for me to follow you with all the details. You know what I'm talking about? And so if your spouse comes to you, sometimes you just want to know, hey, time out. How much is it going to cost? Is any one of the kids missing an appendage? Let's get to the end, and then it's easier for me to follow. Because, you know, once I know how it ends, then everything's going to be okay. I can enjoy the journey of the story once I know how it ends. It's different when you know how it ends. Just tell me, is it okay? Did everything work out? Because once I know, then it's easier to follow. Suspense is great when it comes to movies, but it's really hard in real life. And see, what I love is we get the leisure of laughter when we know how it ends. And in our final week of our greater series, we're going to conclude Romans chapter 8. We've been in Romans chapter 8 for three weeks, and it's been amazing. Maybe the favorite series I've ever preached here. It's been incredible and Paul wants you to know how it all ends. Because once you know how it ends, then you can enjoy the journey of life as your story unfolds. Because God already knows how it ends, and Paul's going to tell us how it ends, and it's spectacular. One scholar said that this may be the most stunning piece of rhetorical art in the entire New Testament. Because Paul's going to tell us how it ends. And he's going to remind us how secure we are in our relationship with God. That our relationship with God is secured by God himself. And when we hear about relationships, sometimes that causes angst or excitement. And we've been through the best and the worst sometimes of life in relationships with others. And so we've had highs and we've had lows. We've had betrayal and abandonment. We've had rejection and sometimes death. And so sometimes relational trauma means that I'm guarded towards my other relationships. And when it comes to God and we hear about his never ending, never failing, always and forever love, sounds amazing. But sometimes we wonder, well, will, will I get my heart broken with him too? Will he change his mind also? And what Paul is going to do in, in the end of Romans 8 is he's actually going to address any objection you or other readers might have about God's never stopping love. He's going to answer questions that naturally occur in people's mind. He's not just going to teach us. He's going to meet us right where we are. So if you've ever wondered, like, if I give my whole heart to God, will God give his whole heart to me? And Paul's going to answer that. 
And he's not just going to teach us. He's going to remove any barrier that we feel. And he's going to show us just how it all ends. And so Romans chapter eight, it's glorious. It's spectacular. That's where we're going to finish our series at today. And so God, would you help us through your spirit, by your power to be confident that there's nothing that can ever separate us from your love that is in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. And everybody said? So Paul's going to jump into the objections and questions that might keep someone from embracing a never-ending, never-stopping love that God has for us. And so the, the first sort of objection that he's going to deal with is he's going to say, okay, if God is for us, then who can be against us? And that's where he's going to begin. And he begins in verse 31 and 32. And Paul says this, what then are we to say about these things? And if you missed last week, we talked about suffering and the reality of difficulty and hardship. So if you've ever wondered why do bad things happen to good people, go listen to last week's sermon. What do we say to these things? Suffering. If God is what? Who is? against us. Then look at verse 32. He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? This is good news. And I love that Paul begins here. Paul says, if God is for us, for us, then who can be against us? This is good news. Because we live in a world where everyone is in it for themselves. But Paul says, not only is God for his glory, but God is for us. And listen, it doesn't matter who's against you when the Almighty is for you. It doesn't matter how mighty anyone else is, because mighty versus Almighty, Almighty always wins. He says, God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? And to prove how for you he is, he gave his own son for you. God the Father disowned his son in order to adopt you. And if the Father was willing to give his son to save you, then there's nothing he isn't willing to do to keep you. So Paul begins sort of the landing of the plane in Romans 8 by saying, don't forget, you are a child of God who has been adopted into the family of God. And for you to be adopted, Jesus had to be rejected. That's how much God is for you. So do not forget, if God gave Jesus to save you, then there's nothing God won't give to keep you. That's what Paul's talking about. There's no higher price to be paid than what was paid for your salvation. And what Paul is doing is he's reminding the reader of another time when a father was going to sacrifice his son. Do y'all remember the story of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac? Show of hands, you remember that story? Well, if you're newer to church or if you've forgotten, Abraham's in the Old Testament. He actually wasn't a good guy. He was sort of a pagan guy from a pagan land, but, but God chose him and made him a good guy. And then he makes Abraham a promise. He said, hey, you and Sarah are gonna have a baby. The problem was Abraham and Sarah were really, really old. The Bible actually said they're so old, they're as good as dead. How about being described that way? 
And Sarah laughs at God. She says, a child changing diapers? We're in them. (laughs) And Abraham, he hears God say, you're going to have a son. And that son is going to birth a nation. And then that nation is going to birth a savior. Now, the problem was it took a really, really long time in their mind for God to keep his promise. And so Sarah, still barren, she decides, Abraham, you know what we need? We need another woman here. That's not going to end well. Two women is too many. That's why the Bible says one man, one woman. That's enough. Well, Abraham has a child with Hagar, the maid, and then there's jealousy. No one saw that coming. But God doesn't give up. He reminds Abraham again of the promise, and eventually, in God's timing, a son is born to Abraham and Sarah, the son of the promise, the miracle child. They had waited so long for their firstborn son. They loved him, and I imagine they spoiled him. And then God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I need you to take your son and sacrifice him as an offering. What? Like the son we waited on for years and years and years, the son of the promise, the son who will give birth to a nation, and the nation will give birth to the Savior, that son? Yeah, that son. Well, Abraham believes God. And the test wasn't for Isaac's life, but for Abraham's heart. And so he takes Isaac on a journey. You can read about it in Genesis. It's about a 50-mile journey. And I would imagine if I were the dad somewhere on a 50-mile, six- or seven-day walk, I might reconsider Abraham is so old, he's as good as dead. Isaac is young. Dude could have just ran off. But they go together and they get to the place of the sacrifice, father and son together. And listen, the Bible says that the son carried the own, the, his own wood for his own sacrifice on his back. Carried it willingly, laid his life down willingly. And Abraham was going to sacrifice his son, the son of the promise, the miracle son, the son who would give birth to a nation, who would give birth to the Savior. He pulled the knife up. Hebrews said he had so much faith in God that he believed that if Isaac died, God would resurrect him. So he's ready to do it, and an angel shows up. The Bible actually says the angel shows up, which most theologians believe was a pre-incarnate Jesus. Angel shows up and says, oh, time out. God is actually intervening and God is going to provide a substitute. And so God spared the son and provided a substitute. And Abraham named that place Jehovah Jireh. The Lord provides. Because God provided a substitute in that day which was a foreshadowing of Jesus who came later as the final sacrifice. Abraham and Isaac that day were on Mount Moriah. And a thousand years later, Jesus walked up that very same mountain. We know it as Mount Calvary. Jesus walked up the very same hillside carried the wood for his sacrifice and willingly laid his own life down. And God provided Jesus as a substitute for us. 
And that's what Paul is saying here in Romans 8, 31 and 32. What are we going to say to these things, suffering or difficulties or trials? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will then he not graciously give us all things? So I told you, if God gave Jesus to save you, then there's nothing he won't give to keep you. I have three kids, one son and two daughters. I don't want to sacrifice any of them for you. My firstborn son, not a chance. I have two daughters. Hey, no way. If you've raised sons and daughters, you know, man, you touch my girls. I love them equally, but, but boys and girls are different. You know, I watch... My daughter's growing up, man, and they're feeding their baby, and they're playing the house. I'm like, they've got a chance. <laughs> I watched my son run around shirtless, making machine gun noises, and jump off the house. I'm like, uh, undecided. <laughs> I remember when my son was born, after seven years of waiting and six miscarriages, we named him Caleb, which means different from all the rest. I spoke his name over him for nine months while he was in my wife's womb, growing. And when he came out, he was crying, and you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's just a mess in there. And they took him over, and they were doing the APGAR test, and I walked over there, and he's crying, and I said his name the exact way I had done it for nine months, and he stopped crying, turned his head, and stared at me in my eyes. I was done. It's my son, my firstborn. After waiting. And if someone comes up to me and says, Wade, people will die and live forever separated from God unless you sacrifice Caleb. Do you know what my answer is? Do you know what my answer is? I'll pray for him. What father does that? I protect with everything in me my son. I don't sacrifice him. I defend him. I lay my life down, not his. But the father sent his son to die so that you could live forever. Paul says if he did that, what do you think he's not willing to do to keep you? God did that. There's nothing he won't do. And when we hear that, what I want to make sure is we don't immediately think, oh, how amazing we must be. Instead, we need to think how incredible God must be. And one pastor describes it as the difference between like cats and dogs. So show of hands, cat people. Two of y'all are, the rest of y'all are ashamed, you know. <laughs> Dog people. I just want to know pure and holy in the room. I just want to know. <laughs> you know, when you do something for a cat, the cat is always thinking, look at the way the servants take care of me. I must be a spectacular master to be treated this way. <laughs> They're evil, man. Dante's Inferno was written after Allegory stared in a cat's eyes too long. 
But a dog, on the other hand, you do something for a dog, and the dog's thinking, wow, look at my master. Look at my master. Look how amazing my master is that he would do this for me. And when we read what Paul is saying about what God has done, we don't go, look at me. We go, look at him. My master laid his son down so that I could live. And so that, that's what Paul is saying. If God is for us, who can be against us? And not only does he say that, then his second argument is who shall bring a charge against God's elect. And that's what he says in verse 33. So check out verse 33. Paul says, who can bring an accusation, a charge against God's elect? And that just means someone chosen in advance. God selected you and chosen you. If you have ever wrestled with that, go back and read Ephesians 1 and it just lays it out. You're chosen in advance. God is the one who justifies. So he said, who's going to bring a charge if God's already done this? And so I think some clarity, Paul also wrote the book of Colossians. Look at what Paul said in verse 12 and 13 of chapter two. This, this will really help you see the way to this. He says, and when you were dead and your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you what? Alive with him, check this out, and forgave us all of our trespasses. And then look at the next verse. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us. And he has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. It's done. That's why Paul says in verse 33, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Those whom he has already chosen, God is the one who justifies. Justifies means being made right in his sight. Who's going to charge us with anything when God has already done all of that? God chose us to be placed in Jesus's place, and he took Jesus and put him in our place. Sin and shame for righteousness. And the Bible says that Jesus is actually the judge in eternity. So the only one who could judge you has already taken your place. The one who could condemn you has already died for you. Only God can bring a charge against you, and it's already been paid for on the cross. And once you've been declared holy in his sight, you cannot be declared unholy. Once you're justified, you can't be unjustified. If you're familiar with the legal term double jeopardy, are you familiar with that? That's where a person who's been on trial for an offense cannot be retried once the case has been adjudicated. The law doesn't allow two adjudications for the same offense. If you've been charged for a crime, you can't be recharged. And so Paul is saying, all of your offenses against the creator God have already been charged and paid for. Dealt with, so you can't be tried again. Well, what if I sin? Welcome to the club. It's been dealt with. And Paul is trying to remind you of this assurance and this hope and this faith that we have in God's love for us. So he says, 
Who's going to bring a charge against you? There ain't nobody out there. And not only does he say that, he tells us this. Well, then who's to condemn? I should make this list. Write this down. Who condemns? Look at what he says in this verse. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who's going to condemn you? You remember in week one, we talked about how the enemy gets you to condemn yourself. The enemy gets you to condemn others. The enemy gets you to believe God is condemning you. But there is no condemnation, Romans 8 verse 1, for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's done. It's dealt with. And so sometimes we think, God, man, I know you love me. But are you going to change your mind? Because I've been in relationships before where I was loved, but then I was abandoned. So God, are you going to change your mind? And people may do this, but God doesn't. So you got to stop beating yourself up for something Jesus was already beaten for. When you're in, you're in. And you can never be out. There's no one to condemn you. And then, and then look at what he says Jesus is doing. He's interceding for us. Jesus' ministry didn't stop on the cross. Hey, Jesus is praying for you right now. He's interceding for you right now. He's taking your fears and your hopes and your dreams and your failures and all of that into the throne room of God for you on your behalf. Because he's a sympathetic high priest who knows what it's like to struggle here. And Paul says, man, there's, there's no one left to condemn you. And then, and then look what he says less. Look how he rounds it out. Not only that, but look at the last point. Then who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? And this is what he talks about in verse 35 and 36. Look at this. He says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all the day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. So Paul is saying life on earth is hard and there's misery and sorrow and suffering. And we do this with you and for you. But look at how he preceded that. Go back one verse. Well, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction, and this is talking about like any sort of trouble that brings anxiety. Anything in the last year bring you some anxiety? <laughs> Hello. Well, when anxiety or when trouble comes, you might ask the question, God, do you still love me? And you know what God's answer is? Yes. Can distress, any stressful circumstances? Hello, we just went through one of the most stressful 18 months of my life. And in the midst of that distress, God, do you still love me? Do you know what the answer is? Yes. What about persecution from my friends or my family or my employer? What about famine, physical weakness? What about poverty or nakedness? What about danger? What about impending death? God, in the midst of any of this and all of this, do you still love me? And Paul just takes a praise break and he's like, yeah, absolutely God does. 
And if you remember last week, one of the reasons Paul gets there is because his faith isn't a feeling, his faith is a decision. And I don't always feel like God is for me because things don't always feel great. But Paul has a faith that he's chosen to believe it. I will decide in every moment that my God is for me. And in the midst of any storm, I can have my own praise party because I know God is for me. And so that's what he's saying. He's saying here, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Persecution, famine, stress, sword, any of that. And look how he finishes it. No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I love this. This this is maybe for some of you your favorite verse in scripture. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul covers anything you can bring to the table. What about this? What about this? What about that? He covers it all. The most secure thing we have in this world is the love of God. And we don't understand how weighty the love of God is because we've confused the definition of love. I'll prove it to you. We've done this before. Show of hands if you're married. You love your spouse. Show of hands if you have kids. You love your kids. Show of hands if you have pets. You love your pet. Show of hands. How many of you love tacos? How many of you love sports? How many of you love the fall? How many of you love, we love everything, so we love nothing. We have put in the same sentence a love for a burrito next to the love of Almighty God. And so love has become a junk drawer word that just doesn't mean much in our culture. But love is rightly understood and cannot be understood or experienced apart from the love of Jesus Christ. God's love is the most powerful and precious commodity in creation. Because God's love is active, not reactive. God's love is for you before you are for him. And God's love is one way, which means it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. Nothing stops him from loving you. Nothing stops him from continuing to love you. And so look at what Paul says. He says, death can't separate you from God's love. Life can't separate you from God's love. Angels can't separate you from God's love. Rulers can't separate you from God's love. Things present can't separate you from God's love. Things to come can't separate you from God's love. Heights and depths can't separate you from God's love. Any other created thing can't separate you from God's love. Paul wants you to have assurance. So deep of an assurance that you even believe you can't separate you from God's love. See, you can't lose your salvation because it never belonged to you in the beginning. 
God is the author of it. It belongs to him. And Jesus doesn't lose anything. Well, you know, I, I turned my back. He doesn't. I ran away. He's really fast. And he's also in your future. So if you're in, you're in, and you can never be out. You cannot make God love you anymore. And you cannot make God love you any less. We have a new way of life. And Paul says we are more than conquerors. And he went through all of the objections that people raise to put their full faith and full trust in the God of the Bible. And at the center of all of it is a broken body and a shed blood. And that's the way we're going to conclude our greater series. By having the occasion to really celebrate one of the highest forms of worship that the gathered church gets to do. It says, as often as you eat this bread or you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's suffering until he comes. And so for four weeks, all Paul has done is say, you're loved, you're loved, you're loved, you're loved. Today, he said, God is for you. If God is for you, who can be against you? There's nothing that will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He who willingly gave his son, what won't he willingly do to keep you? God gave Jesus to save you. Therefore, there's nothing he's not willing to do to keep you. And so today, we're going to remember broken body, shed blood. And so we're going to have a moment of reflection. Spend some time with your king. And then we have our deacons at different stations. There's a up front and the back here and at the front. And then when you feel ready, you can kind of move and take an element. But let me give you some understanding if, if you're new to church. One of the things you hear us say all the time is, hey, welcome home welcome home. There's really nothing that we offer here that anyone from anywhere, regardless of their background, can't be a part of. The Lord's Supper is one thing that is reserved for his people. Because at the end of the day, I mean, I, I, I saw Robert and them this morning. That's Welch's grape juice and a little dry cracker. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, like there's nothing mystical in these cups. 
And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, we're just going to ask you just to remain in your seat. No one's going to judge you. No one's going to like think weird of you. In fact, we've actually just been praying since we planted the church three years ago that every week you would be here. But this only means something if you're in, if you're a part of the family of God. And so maybe you want to be in the family of God. You want to confess your sins and ask Jesus to save you. Then do that and be in. But for those who are in, this isn't like Welch's grape juice and a little stale cracker. Like it's a physical reminder of the reason we sing the depths of our songs and the essence of our preaching, the reason why we went to death, from death to life is because of a broken body and a shed blood. So it's, it's pretty special to the church. And so what we ask really is what the scriptures say, don't do it in an unworthy manner. Wait, what does that mean? Well, I, th- I think maybe one of two ways. One might be flippantly. Like, oh, you know, bread and juice. No, it's more than that. Two, I think, would be with like unconfessed, unrepentant sin in your life. That doesn't separate you from God's love. It's been paid for. The only thing it does is disrupt your intimacy. And there's forgiveness waiting on you and intimacy that God wants to replenish. And so take a minute with God and just say, man, hey, I'm sorry. You belong to him. You're not going to stop belonging to him, but but get get the intimacy right. And so we're going to give you time to reflect with the Lord. And then as you feel led, come to one of these stations. The deacons will serve you a cup. The cup has both elements. You just have to unstack it. Come back to your seat and remain standing, and then we'll take the elements together. And so I'm going to give you a moment now. Just bow your heads, close your eyes. What you need more than my voice is the voice of God. and Let him minister to you. Spend some time with your creator. And then as you feel led, grab the elements, return to your seat.